You are listening to audio from the church at Junius Heights. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, thechurchatjuniusheights.org. Amen. Well, I know, but go ahead and be seated just for a second. I know we've been standing a while, but we'll be standing back up in just a moment as we open up God's Word. But let's relax a minute. I want to give you a little background. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a fun thing this has been for us to be a part of in the last year and a half to see the church growing. And last Sunday was just absolutely unbelievable. Wow, just seeing 200 or so people come and just uh, be together on the church campus and and to enjoy that uh, luncheon and just to have so many guests. So we're grateful for that. Our pastor this morning is is serving the Lord. You know, he's he disciples, as you know, uh, Pastor Travis is a discipler. He cares about individuals, not just uh, a group. Uh, he's with a brother today that uh, that has gone through a, a tough time. I think a loss. Uh, some his wife died. Is that correct? And. Uh, they committed to run a marathon together. They're at the Cowtown Marathon. And I got up this morning. I felt that wind. Huh? The half. Yeah, yeah. They committed right, the half. But I got up this morning and the wind was out of the south. That Houston breeze, the gulf, you know, it's that sultry. We don't get that weather up here a lot. But when it comes, we're just grateful we live in Dallas. Amen. And at uh, any rate, it was coming up. And uh, I thought to myself, it's going to be a tough run this morning. So, But he'll be here as soon as he can. As we've been tracking along, now we're in Acts 9, and this is a story about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And it's one of those stories that's so large, it looms so large in the Bible, uh, and it's, it's almost so large that we sometimes have trouble connecting with a story like that. Wow, you know, he was blinded by the light. Blinded by the light. I'm sorry, I just, I just came out. But, but uh, I was thinking, you know, how do we connect with that story? And then as we began to dig through it, I saw so many neat things, so many rich things that are taught there that teaches us some doctrine of God's grace and salvation. So this message is titled Grace Upon Grace. It's the story of Saul's conversion. And uh, to give you a little backdrop, I'm sitting here. I always want to get ready to preach. Amen? So last night, I was doing a Bible study over here on Swiss Avenue with... Uh, uh, with the group of people that said it, it's a it's a monthly Bible study and it typically has a lot of professional Christians in it and speakers you know they asked the president of DTS to come the president of the DBU so somewhere along the line they occasionally ask me okay and uh, all these other people come and they just kind of enjoy being in the, I don't know it's it's not it's just a weird thing it's kind of a neat thing but it's also kind of I don't quite get it sometimes but I love the man and his wife who who offer it. So last night, uh, it was my turn to preach. They asked me to come speak, and they always have a testimony. And the testimony was by a young man named Caleb, who was a Ph.D. student at Dallas Seminary. Now, if you know much about Dallas Seminary, it's probably more, more widely known away from Dallas than it is even here, but it is the quintessential. It's a, it's a good seminary. And to get a THM from Dallas Seminary is, is a big deal. And so this kid, this young man's already got his THM, and he's, he's sticking around working on his Ph.D. now. So he's a bright young fella, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to give his testimony. It's going to be the regular stuff. He gets up, and he talks about, he says, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's the long and short of it, but let me give you my background. And he starts telling his story. He tells the story of a, of a kid who got out of high school, went to college a couple of years, was going nowhere. Dropped out, got a job, was making money. Sleeping around, sleeping, living with girls, doing what he did. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, okay. 
And as he goes through the story, he talks about how he grew up going to church, but he never really connected, never was real to him. And then he gets on down to the, the end, and he says, and then as I kept trying to connect with God, I got a girl pregnant. And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready to be a dad. And, I mean, here's a guy now. He's 25, 26 years of age, and he's telling the real story about his real life, what really happened. And I look at what God has done, and he said, so when I tell you that God can save anybody, you need to know he can save me. So I don't know if you're Caleb or Saul of Tarsus, but you're somebody here today. And Jesus, if you don't hear anything else I say, he's in the business of saving us by his grace. Stand with me in honor of us reading from God's word. Acts chapter 9 at verse 1. But Saul, this is from the English Standard Version. If you have it on your phone or in your hand, please follow along or just look up on the screen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone, anybody, belonging to the way, which is what they called the early church, the people of the way, Men or women, by the way, not just men, but men or women, that includes children too. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And that's operative right there. He meant by that, who are you, God? What's going on? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... He said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. By the way, behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and into the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, I'm going to stop right there. Brother, well, let me read it. Brother Saul, that is operative. Write that, underline that in your Bible. Brother Saul. And he and the Lord Jesus appeared to him, uh, and the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came and sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. That's enough. Thank you. May God bless us with the reading of his word. Thank you. Guys, this story is just amazing. And some of you wonder why I have my coat on. It's because that's where I keep my glasses. And even those of you who've been coming to hear me preach in the last few weeks, you, in the last year, you know that every time I get up here, I go, I don't have my glasses, and someone has to bring me my glasses. So this time, I actually went out to the truck a while ago, got my glasses out of the truck, put them in my pocket, and here we go. I'm good. 
Now, this story is a great story because it tells us a lot about what God does and how he saves us and how important it is. One of the things that's taking place in our culture, there's a great divide, is there not? Between the lost and the saved. And we're living in a time in which people who claim to be born again have more of a sentiment and an emotion and a politic in common with doctrine than they do with their own doctrine. So boomers, which is I am one, if you didn't know that I'm a boomer and you're probably something other, a Gen Xer or a middle or a millennial or maybe even a next generation after that. But boomers, we really, that was our word, born, I've been born again, I've been saved. And we would use that term, and so we were all, we had an experience, we went to an evangelical church, we voted a certain way, we drove certain cars, we, you know, had a number of kids that all looked alike, we went to Baylor or A&M or something like that, you know, we all were in a church together, in a youth group together, and we were all together, and everything was good. But today, there's a divide. You know, you'd go around and ask the average young person today what it means to be a Christian. He said, I don't know, but if it's what that group is, I don't want to be a part of that. Because there's just so much buy-in to a politic and a cultural experience that has little to do, even a sentiment that has little to do with real doctrine and morality and life change. But I want you to hear me today. Salvation brings life change. And the story of Saul of Tarsus is about that. The story of John Paul is about that. The story of John Paul of 12 years ago was the man who was before. And so if you're saying, God can't save me, or I don't know about salvation, I don't know if it works, and you're trying to figure out, do I believe in the virgin birth? What about the stands on abortion? What about transgender? What about you know, uh, same-sex marriage? All these cultural things. Drop those just for a second. You're not going to answer those questions. But here's what you need to know. That Jesus is in the business of changing and saving souls. And that from, from that pivotal point is where the change really begins. You don't get yourself ready to come to Christ. Saul of Tarsus was not sitting there going, walking down the road to Damascus. Going, I've been killing people before, but now I think I'm going to become a Christian. That didn't happen. As a matter of fact, what happened to him was so unique and so pictures how God chooses to call people that it almost shakes us to our boots and it makes us kind of sit there and say, well, what if I don't get a light? Well, let me tell you, you've got something. The fact that you're here today. You ever hear me preach, you'll hear me talk about, I'm calling out the call today. And someone asked me one time, said, Pastor Sam, what do you mean about the call? Who are the called? I said, did God bring you to church today? Uh-huh. Is he speaking to your heart? Do you feel a tug in your heart? Do you feel any kind of notion, a desire, or inquisitiveness about him? Uh-huh. You're the called. Listen, there are several things I want to point out about this. There are three major points that I want you to see in this story that are very pivotal in your understanding what salvation is. Grace upon grace. And the first thing is this. When Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, these words, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When Paul wrote those words, they weren't by accident. Paul knew what it was like to be lost and then saved. He knew what it was like to be headed the one way and been turned around and gone the other way. And so here are the points I want to make about this story that I think should be a part of your salvation theology. Number one, it is by grace that God converts sinners, even those who are most unlikely. It is by his grace. Paul didn't want to be saved. He didn't choose to be saved. You might have had circumstances bring you into this place. You may have bumped into Travis at a restaurant or at a place of business or me somewhere, and, and that's where God is beginning to speak to you. 
He's brought you into a relationship or into a circumstance on a road to Damascus, your road to Damascus, through alcoholism or drug addiction or, or maybe some other porn addiction, whatever that's brought you to that place of, of, of query, that place of, of needing something changed. God is using those events to bring to bear what he wants to do in your life, and it's by his grace that he does it. There are two points under this that I want to make. By grace, God converts sinners, even those most unlikely. Number one, salvation does not depend on the will of man, but on the sovereign will of God. Salvation does not depend, and this story tells us, Paul didn't want to get saved. He'd been killing Christians. He, he went to the high priest and asked for letters that he might go and bind those who were following the way and bring them into prison, which probably meant, in some cases, death. You see, the will of man was what Saul wanted. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That describes Saul. He went to the high priest and asked him uh, for letters that he might drag them from the synagogues in Damascus and bring them to the high priest so that they could be punished. So salvation does not depend on the will of man, but on the sovereign will of God. Second observation I would make about God converts sinners, even the most unlikely. Number two. Salvation does not depend on the merit of man, but on the grace of God. Look at the word. Jesus said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I always thought that was an interesting thing that Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Now it sounds good, but then you start breaking that down. What did he mean? Jesus meant, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. You're giving me a tough time. You're, getting, you're in my face. So I want to stop. <laughs> How would you like to have Jesus say that to you? I want you to cut it out, Matthew. I want you to cut it out, Andrew. That's enough. That's what happened. And then you say, well, what does that mean about grace? It just means that he loved him anyway. Wow. How many of you have had somebody get in your face and hurt your feelings? And you go, I'm writing them off, by golly. I won't be around them anymore. A bunch of turkeys. I was driving down the tollway today. You know, I hate bullies. I hate bullies. Now that I've become a senior adult, I know what they're saying. They see my gray hair, and they're thinking, don't let old man get out of my way. I just want to, you know, whoop them. Some young punk, <clears throat> excuse me, some young person pulled up behind me going 90 miles an hour down the left-hand lane. I was trying to get around to someone in the middle lane who was only going 68, and I wanted to go 70. So I was taking my time passing them. Pull over, got my blinker on. I'm just listening to Christian music because I am a Christian. And this guy comes up behind me and he just gets around on my tail. This kind of thing. And you know what I wanted to do, Josh? I wanted to hit that brake and say, get out of here. But I thought he might be coming to Junior's Heights. Wouldn't that be terrible? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, really. See, I don't mind God saving the other guy, but not that guy. Not that guy that pushed me in the left-hand lane. You're persecuting me. God's grace. See, this wasn't, you know, Jesus didn't need Paul. He didn't need Saul. We're sitting there going, wow, he got a good one there. No, no, no. No, he's the good one, and he got him. There are no good ones. He just said, you're, 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 it's by grace. So those two things, salvation does not depend on the will of man, but on the sovereign will of God. And number next, salvation does not depend on the merit of man, but the grace of God. Second observation I want to make. By grace, when sinners are converted, there are identifiable marks all may see. So salvation 
he can convert even the most unlikely sinners. But by grace, when sinners are converted, there are identifiable marks. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. But in this text, there are certain signs that the text points out that show some marks of salvation. And so I want you to look with me. Because not only does God save us by his grace, he changes us by his grace. And this story tells us how. First of all, there was conviction of sin. Before a person becomes a saint, they must first believe that they are a sinner. Amen? You have to come to the place of understanding that I'm a sinner and I need his help. The Lord asked Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He called him out on his sin. He said, you're sinning in verse 9-4. The repetition of his name shows the Lord's tender concern for him. Matter of fact, look at the Bible and how many times God doubles up the name Martha, Martha. We talked about that this morning. Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about with many things. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he wept over it. When, when Jesus mentions the name twice, it's not him going in your face, in your face. It's going, mm, son, son, John Paul, John, if you'd been my boy, if you'd have been my son, and I could have talked to you just like your daddy, I would have said, oh, John Paul, John Paul, come on, son. You got to do better than this. I love my children. And when I talk to them, when I say their name twice, they turn around and look. They know they're not in trouble, but they know daddy wants to talk to them. And it's a tender moment. It's a tender moment calling him out in his sin. There's a conviction of sin. So you say to me, Pastor Sam, does, do, I have to, do I have to be convicted of my sin? Listen, folks, if you don't know that you're a sinner, you're in a bad place. The wages of sin is death. God died for sinners. And there's a sense in which, even though I want to be very careful that I don't put together a, a, a formula for how to get saved because it's all by his grace, but the bottom line is I've discovered that people who truly come to faith in Jesus Christ come to a first understanding of, man, I'm a sinner. I need help. I need his grace. Number next, humbling from pride. Humbling from pride. In Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Saul of Tarsus, for he is praying. For behold, it doesn't say in that text, that translation, but it said, behold. Jesus is going, look there. Look, why? It's almost like he's going, look at there. See what's happened? He's praying. I love that line. It's actually in the original translation. It says, behold, take a look. He's praying. You know why he was praying? Because he had been shaken to his boots. You say, humbling from pride. Well, let me tell you. He couldn't see. I don't know who Ananias was. This is not the Ananias and the Ananias and Sapphira story that we told a while back. This is another Ananias. He's not mentioned anywhere else. But it leads me to believe that it doesn't give him any title. It doesn't say who he is. In other words, he's not a big dog. Saul of Tarsus was a big dog. He studied. He'd gone to Harvard. He'd gone to Oxford. He'd gone to the top school. He was somebody. And God sent Ananias to him. I think God not only has a sense of humor, he has a way of bringing us where we need to bear. God teaches us things. I sat last night in this worship time getting ready to, to worship and this beautiful couple were sitting next to me. They lead worship at DTS every week. They're the worship leaders for the DTS seminary. And they also lead worship at, at the uh, Reunion Resurrection Church downtown. They're worship leaders down there. Great couple. And so, you know, they were doing their thing, getting ready for worship and seemed busy. And all of a sudden, she got up and began to sing. And we knew, we knew 
that this was a woman who had no sense of pride or any sense of I'm somebody. No, it was so obvious that she was just worshiping. She held her hands up simply and sang in a simple, tender voice. And Belinda and I just sat there and worshiped with her. What I've discovered about believers when they get saved is that God brings them, he brings them down, he takes away. He said there's no more dividing line between us. There's no Jew nor Gentile or bond or free or Greek or Jew. It's just that we become one. And, and the, what I mean by that is not mean we get along. I mean more than that. You're my brother, Jonathan. You're my sister, Blythe. You guys are my family. And we talk together. I learn from you and you learn from me. And there's no sense of i got a Ph.D. I've been in the ministry for a long time. Who cares about that? We're family. You know, I, Sunday, we left Sunday, and we got in the truck, and we were headed up. And Belinda and I were just rejoicing over what God is doing at Junius. And I said, did you see Pastor Travis today? And she said, what? I said, he didn't miss a table. He talked to everybody there. I just began to cry. Oh, listen, we don't need pastors who are celebrities. We need pastors who just love people. And pastor, I know you do. And you see, that's what, that's what God does. He takes away all the junk out of our life. Listen, guys. Travis has a story, too. Pastor Sam has a story, too. It's, it's not about being dignified or not dignified. And it's not about us judging one another. It's about us loving one another. And you want to know what's, you know what pride actually is? Pride, is, pride is, is, is just a sign of the deeper sin, which is ego. It's, it's a deep sin of saying, I'm better than you. And it means that you don't understand what God has done in your life. He's done some great things. So it's a humbling. There's a mark of humbling, and Paul had it. There's a recognition of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. He said, who are you, Lord? And that's significant. He was basically saying, he knew it was good. Listen, this light, it, it, we don't think it was like an angel. This was so bright that it blinded him. As a matter of fact, God has called the light. Remember when Paul writes in Philippians, you shine like stars in the universe? You know, Paul didn't understand astrology back then 2,000 years ago, but he had the metaphor correct. Because Jesus is the light. He's the sun, and the stars get their light from him. And he says, you as Christians shine like stars in the universe. How? Because their light is from God. God is light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the light of the world. In other words, God is light. And in light, there is no darkness. When God comes into the room, matter of fact, the, it's all throughout the Bible that when we get to heaven, there will be a continual light. Because he is light. But it won't be a troublesome or burdensome light. But in this case, it was so bright, it blinded him. He knew it was God. He said, who are you, Lord? This was a guy that thought he was following God. He said, I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting me. So there was an immediate submission. So that's a sign, I believe, that someone's been changed. There's an immediate submission. There's transformation from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. They're seeking the Lord in prayer. It says, and go and you'll find him, and he's praying. Saul prayed all the time, but it was that legalistic prayer. It was that rope prayer. But this was a prayer that was on his face. He could not see, and he's saying, God, what has happened to me? And you know what Jesus said? That word, behold, he is praying, is, is actually this. 
And guess what? This is awesome. He's finally on his knees. Fellowship with the Lord's people. Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands upon Saul. He said, Brother Saul. This is significant. Ananias said, Lord, let me tell you about him. God said, go. And what did he do? He said, Brother Saul. Guys, if there's going to be a danger in this church, it's going to be a prejudice that comes from every newcomer that comes. And let me tell you something. When we started Parkway Hills, the biggest danger I had was the original nine. You know the original nine? They were the holy ones. They sacrificed. They gave more money. They never missed an event. So the new people came, and all of a sudden, they started getting involved and putting them in leadership, and all of a sudden, that original nine were going, <laughs> I wonder if they're called like us. Do they have a sense for vision and mission like us? And I had to preach to them. I said, listen, folks, it's not about us. It never was. It never was. Someone asked me, how could you walk away from Parkway Hills? It wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. It was the Lord's. I didn't build, God didn't build Parkway Hills through my leadership so I could be a testimony to me. There's no statue of Sam Dennis up on the tollway. They asked me when we were naming the street, we wanted to name the street. Someone said, you want to name it Sam Dennis Drive? And I said, absolutely not. It's Chapel Hill. Why? I don't know. It sounds like a good name to me. We named that street right there. Chapel Hill. There's not a sign. My, my name was never out on the post. Pastor D. Samuel Dennis II was not there. It's still not. Someone said, how could you walk away? I didn't walk away. Left it in good stead. I pray for it every day. Blair and I love that place. We love this place. It's not about us. Okay, so be careful. Be careful. We are a brotherhood. We are a sisterhood. Fellowship with the Lord's people. Uh, life lived under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. Life lived with purpose and direction under the sovereign will of God. So these are all operative things. These are marks. If you go down and start writing down from this story all the things that you see that either circumstantially were happening to Saul or he was doing, you're going to see steps. You're going to see conviction of sin. You're going to see a, a, a loosening of pride. You're going to see the fellowship of the family. You're going to see a lot of things in that text. And I challenge you to dig it out. Dig it out. Get into it. There's some marks. So, go back and review. God, by his grace, converts sinners, even the most unlikely, which means me and you. Number next, God, when he converts a sinner, there are marks of the conversion. So God saves us by his grace. He changes us by his grace. Now, the last point. Not only does God... Um, Save us by his grace and change us by his grace. Listen to this. By grace, God uses converted sinners to spread his gospel. God uses us by his grace. He says, go. The man is my instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. I wouldn't have picked him. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked him. I really wouldn't have. We have a tendency to look back and go, wow, he was something else. Yeah, he was. He wrote, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He wrote uh, that God gave me a thorn in the flesh. 
Satan wanted to buffet me, but God used it to show me his grace. He wrote, for by grace are you saved through faith. He said, it's not of ourselves. He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. He was always aware of his sin. He was always aware of what God did in his life, that he was not somebody that God was. And the church is thankful. I'm going back to Marshall, Texas, uh, as soon as we finish church, and we're going to drive. I haven't been there in a while. I taught there for two semesters. I absolutely loved it. I, 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 Jonathan, it was the hardest thing I ever did. These were kids that didn't want to be in my Old Testament class or my New Testament class. It was horrible. You know, I thought, this will be easy. I'm going to be in a Christian school. They're going to be so excited to be in my class. They would come in, and they was half asleep and going, we got any homework today? Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to read, you know. I mean, come on, man. It was, it was horrible. And I, I, I just, I thought, oh. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But I fell in love with some of these kids. And I watched them grow in their walk in faith. When I first got there to East Texas Baptist University, I was insecure. Because I didn't have a Ph.D., I just had a master's degree, and all the other professors had a Ph.D. So I thought, you know, I'm not worthy. I don't, you know, what can I do? And so I spent a lot of energy confessing to you, trying to be good, really good. Somewhere along the way, I was reminded of who I was, a sinner saved by grace. And I became just Pastor Sam again. Started loving those kids. And guess what happened? They started learning, and so did I. When Pastor Travis asked me to preach a message called Grace Upon Grace, I thought, well, that'd be about, but I'm here to tell you these three things you must know. He saves us by his grace because we're sinners. He changes us by his grace because we wouldn't change ourselves bringing circumstances and people to bear, to change us. And then he uses us by his grace. Nobody is sitting there going, boy, God, you're lucky that I'm on your team. That doesn't happen that way. God uses sinners, of which I am one. And so are you. So what's the application? Well, I've got a few questions to ask. Number one, do you know God's grace? Do you know it? Have you experienced it? I hope so. Number two, have you been converted or changed by his grace? So, Pastor Sam, what do I need to do? Let him. Let him in. Well, I, I got questions. I, I don't understand the virgin birth. Well, neither do I. Hello? It's a miracle. I don't know if I want to line up with the evangelical group. You guys are weird sometimes. Yeah, we are. And sometimes we can be mean, but we shouldn't be. But I'm not. I'm not mean. Number next, are you now walking in this conversion or change, experiencing his grace as marks and signs of your conversion? Do you walk in his grace? Do you, do you go along saying, giving God the glory for what he's done? Every day reminded of what he's done for you. And by the way, if he's given you grace, that means you ought to turn around and give others grace when they don't measure up to what you think. I would love to have been in Ananias' head when he walked in and goes, okay. No, I don't think he did that. I think he submitted to God and he went to 
Paul, I love he called him Brother Saul. God didn't ask him to call him brother. He did. When will God's grace be enough for you? I'm going to tell you my story just briefly. When I was a young man, many of you know my story, I was married to a high school cheerleader. Her name was Kathy. I was in the youth group sitting on the back row, and Kathy came to church, and she was cutie patootie. And I was the coolest guy in the youth group. I started flirting with her. We started dating. I married her. Because back in my day, you couldn't hoochie-coo unless you were married, and I wanted to really hoochie-coo. Or we didn't. So when we got married, it was horrible. It was all in the flesh. We struggled. She was unhappy. I was prideful. To make a long story short, as I was graduating from college, just barely 23, our marriage ended. Along the way, God had called me to preach. But I couldn't preach now. I was divorced. How could a divorced man ever preach? That won't happen. I was set in church. I knew I was called to preach. I wanted to be up there so much. I wanted to do what God called me to do, but I felt like I shouldn't. When I was ordained, years later, by the way, nearly 10 years later, God gave me a bullet to praise God. Amen. If you don't believe in God's grace, look at my wife. Listen to our story. She'd never been married. She was a good Christian girl. Perfect in every way. Her friend said, you shouldn't marry him. She said, well, I, I love this guy. I know he's a pill, but I love him. 37 years we've been married. Two wonderful children. Four grandchildren. She's downstairs right now, wishing she could be up here sometimes. So, to make a long story short, we went along in life and after we married my business, I began to feel the tug, and the church kept asking me to go to work for them. So I thought, maybe that's what I will do. I'll become an executive pastor. Billy Weber at, at Prestonwood asked me to come be his executive pastor. Uh, Johnny Bassanio down at Second Baptist Houston asked me to be an executive pastor. I thought, well, that's how I'll fulfill my calling. I'll be the executive pastor of a church. I won't preach, but I'll be that. So that was my calling. And I kept thinking that would be it. But when I became the executive or the executive pastor at, at Northway, which is where the tornado came through. It's the village church now at Northway. When I became the executive pastor, their church was running 11 or 1200. It's a big church. And the church began to struggle. And it went through a tough time. And uh, the pastor had some immorality and they had to let him go. And now you've got Walker Rayleigh, and the Methodist pastor. He's Accused of choking his wife. You got Billy Weber messing up at Prestonwood. You got our pastor getting fired. And I'm sitting there still trying to be legitimized. And I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of our profession. I think, this is terrible. What's wrong with Satan's just all over us? In the middle of that, a friend of mine came and said, Pastor Sam, I want you to pray about planting a church up in, up in he didn't call me Pastor Sam. He said, I want you to pray about starting a church up in Plano. I said, well, who'll be the pastor? And he said, well, you would. And I said, I, I, Billy, I can't preach. He said, why? I said, well, you know my story. And he said, Sam, if ever there was a man called to preach, I believe it was you. And then he looked at me and he said this. When will God's grace be enough for you? When will God's grace 
be enough for you. First Baptist Dallas never would call. Prestonwood never would call. So I became that guy who started a church and started school. Carved underneath my pulpit at Parkway Hills are these words. Here stands Pastor Sam, a man twice blessed. First by grace unto salvation. And second by grace to preach Christ. So I never walk in the pulpit saying, y'all are lucky I'm here. I walk into any pulpit saying, praise God who saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. If you don't hear anything else in Saul's story today, you need to hear that God converts sinners, even the most unlikely. You need to hear that God changes sinners, their perspective, their attitudes, their heart, their relationships. And you need to know that God uses sinners just like me and just like you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word to us today and for its encouragement about grace. Father, I pray that we would be a church that understands grace not as a license to sin, but as a leg to stand on, the only leg, the only foundation, that our foundation is firmly and squarely anchored upon the truth of the gospel to change lives, that we would not be pompous in any way, but filled with grace, not so much so that our doctrine is watered down or that we excuse any behavior whatsoever, but, Father, that we give people who are human, who've been broken, who've been shattered, who've been hurt and crushed, the opportunity by the grace of God to allow God to change them. And then we love as you would love. We live as you would live. And we give you all the glory. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.